This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Away. Away makes first-class luggage at coach prices that allow you to charge your phone on the go. For $20 off your order, go to awaytravel.com fool and use the promo code fool. That's awaytravel.com fool, promo code fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. I'm your host, Vincent Chen, and it is Tuesday, March 14th. We are continuing with our special coverage of South by Southwest Interactive this week. The Motley Fool sent a team of analysts down to Austin, Texas to get a first-hand look at everything coming out of the conference. And calling in today from Austin is Dylan Lewis. How are you, Dylan? Doing okay. Uh, taking a little break from checking things out at the convention center to give you a call on the hotel phone. Sure, sure. So, uh, our overarching topic for today's episode uh, really comes down to, I think, product testing. And we will be looking at this in the context of two very well known consumer companies, those being Netflix and Walt Disney. So, starting with the leading streaming service, Dylan, what did Netflix share exactly at their talk at South by Southwest this year? Yeah, the session hosted by a Netflix rep was probably one of the ones I was most excited about when I was looking at the schedule. So I went to the session called Design Like a Scientist, A-B Testing UX at Netflix. There's a lot of letters in there, some acronyms. Um, but the idea here was there was a designer from Netflix basically giving a chat about how does Netflix make changes to the platform, keep their existing users happy, and then bring in new ones as well. That's kind of the big ticket here, and that's what they walk through. Sure. Uh, I have heard previously about Netflix and their focus in terms on data, and I can. I'm really interested to hear, uh, you know, what they talked about uh, at the conference. But you know, the way I think about it, sometimes to put it in context for listeners, is like kind of an old Hollywood versus new Hollywood. Uh, you know, I think. If you think about the old model of how movies and TV shows are made, and how Netflix can apply a more modern data-focused approach, it really comes out very superior to the old way. Whereas recently, as even ten years ago, you know, you have industry insiders, you know, people writing scripts, directors, uh, agents, uh, they're making these incredibly important decisions, often with maybe millions of do- dollars in the production budget in the balance, essentially, and it's. Based on somewhat unquantifiable things like star power or intuition, so a leading actor or uh, director may have a strong track record at the box office, but even the biggest stars have their flops. And the closest things I, I've been able to think of, when in terms of a more standardized approach to creating content, it might be sequels and franchises where you can count on the previous success and established audience of an earlier film. You also have things like remakes that bank on nostalgia. And then there's trends, right? You often see trends at the box office. You know, dystopian young adult books often get turned into movies, and that was a trend recently. Then zombie films, they'll become extremely popular, but eventually they peter out after oversaturating the market. But Netflix. As we'll get to, it, you know, it takes a very different approach into really seeing, you know, what will work uh, in terms of the content that they produce and also how they present that to their customers, right? Yeah, they're in kind of a unique position, right? Because they control the delivery of their content, and so they know exactly how much time people are spending watching certain series, which ones are incredibly popular, when people start to tune out, all that kind of stuff. Um, so they have the analytics on that side with their platform. What this conversation really focused on was. How do they update the way that they deliver that content in a way that's super user-friendly and keeps people satisfied? And um, really, this comes down to A-B testing. And this is something that a lot of online businesses do 
It's actually something that we do a little bit at the full here and there. But what it means is every day, um, Naveen, who is one of the guys who he led this conversation, Naveen Eingard, um, he and his team of designers are testing out these little changes to Netflix's platform. And they're doing it on a very small subsection of customers. And basically, they're looking to see how those users, that small section of users, interacts with the changes compared to a control group that's just getting the standard experience. And very often, what they're doing here is trying to drive at improving customer satisfaction, like I talked about. And they'll usually tie that to some core metric. Maybe it's logins per month, maybe streaming hours or customer retention, something like that. And then ultimately, if what they apply to that very small subsection, the test beats the control, the standard experience, they'll roll out that new design element or that new functionality to the larger whole Netflix user base. Okay, and I'm going to ask you uh, to see if they uh, gave you any examples of how you know uh, examples of how they use this data to change things that uh, people who are on Netflix might be familiar or that they've seen or noticed. Um, but one thing that really fascinated me was you know when I was doing my research on this, I the level of detail that they have for every subscriber, they know exactly what you were watching to a shocking level of detail. So you know time and day of the week check, where you're located, check, device you're watching on, whether it's a tablet, a TV, PC, check, what you search for and how you rate content, check, how you browse the library even, or your scroll through, rewind, pause. All of those things are included. And it's interesting, the idea that this is kind of real-time feedback they receive because they can recommend content to to a user, and after uh, that a subscriber watches that content, they often rate it, and voila, you kind of know right then and there if their algorithms are accurate for that specific subscriber. Because in the end, uh, you know, obviously only the subscribers who really d- discover more interesting content that they like on Netflix will want to stay with the service. This will play into loyalty and retention if they ever want to raise their rates again, for example. Uh, and an article I found in Wired delves into this uh, as well, how the company is really deliberate, even in the imagery it uses for TV shows and movies in its Netflix library, and how they'll do this very detailed analysis of the colors and the cover art that they use, and how they can tell the company about user preferences and behavior. But did the speakers at the conference share details of how that really played through in terms of you know this kind of A-B testing? Yeah, they used a couple high-profile examples that I think a lot of regular users of Netflix might see and, and actually really like. I think one of the main ones, one of the most recognizable versions of uh, this testing format being eventually rolled out to the larger audience was Netflix's post-play function. And this is basically the mechanism that gets you the next episode rolling as soon as you finish a show, right? That is what leads so many viewers into that binge-watch cycle like, oh, the next episode's going to start in 15 seconds. Um, that is something that they tested into because it helped keep people on the platform longer and it boosted retention. It boosted um, satisfaction. People were getting more out of the service. They were watching more. And, you know, I think that that is kind of a staple of the online offering right now. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, I noticed that. Um, I don't remember exactly when that rolled in, but now for me, especially I've been discovering some new series. Um, I've also been trying to push my wife to watch stuff like the OA, and I have to say that it is very conducive to, as you mentioned, you know, you play that first episode, you like it, and once it automatically goes through, you don't have to touch the remote on Roku specifically at all. 
it can definitely push you into you know binging those three, four more episodes, and before you know it, you know Netflix is a bigger, bigger part of your kind of entertainment experience and uh, and options. Yeah, and you know if if you're looking for kind of how the internal team thinks about testing and and what it looks like on the design side and kind of the considerations they have. Um, the speaker did walk through their framework a little bit and talk about some of the keys they focus on. Mm-hmm. And one of his big things was this idea of <laughs> test before you invest. And if you remember a couple of years ago, they totally redesigned the Netflix site. Um, it went from being kind of an older tech look to a very fresh um, kind of current modern look that we see today. But when you're talking about overhauling the design of an entire site, like that's pretty daunting and it involves a ton of design work. And so before they went wholesale with it, what they decided to do is test a redesigned main page. That's it. And all the other pages were in the old skin. Once they saw that the newly designed page was better and was performing better for the metrics that they're looking at, they then applied it to all of the sub-pages, all the show-specific things, all the subcategories, all that type of stuff. And so you see, even within the testing environment, they can get very granular before they decide to apply it broadly to the whole platform. Okay, and uh, you know what else uh, do they look for in terms of uh, you know things that show them or you know guiding principles for them in this testing process? Well, we talked about the amount of data that they can collect on their users, and I think that the notion of like the metric being their compass is is really what underlies all of the work that they do. Um, they might be looking at a problem like, okay, um, how do we get people to watch more? And all the design elements are going to be aimed at a specific metric. It's going to be episode starts or you know hours streamed or something like that. Um, but the idea of having a very specific number that they're focused on, um, that kind of keeps the design work organized, it keeps it fairly unified, and just generally aligned towards that goal. Um, if you want to talk about another example of some of this work being successful and then later being rolled out broadly on the platform, um, anytime you're looking at a title on Netflix and you put your cursor over it, you know there is a play button when you hover over it. That's something they tested into. You know, ultimately they want people to be watching a ton on the platform, and the less information they show, and you know they show interesting graphics and you know maybe the rating and the title and a very brief description. But people want to get to playing the episodes, and they realize that very early on in a control group, and then rolled it out to the rest of the platform. So that's another example. Okay, and um, you know, something that you had mentioned uh, to me before the show that I thought was really interesting was some of the things that Netflix has spoken of, of how people uh, say they prefer certain things and how the company discovers that when they observe their actions, because they have this very granular data and observing how people use the service, those things don't always match up and how the company needs to focus on what their customers actually do rather than what they say. How did that kind of play out? Yeah, I think that that is probably one of the funniest ones. Um, where you know we think as consumers we know what we want, um, that isn't always the case though. So they asked this survey question, and they said, "What's one thing you would like to know more about before signing up for Netflix?" And 46% of respondents said they wanted to know all the movies and TV shows that are available. And you'll notice if you go to the sign-on page, they don't make a full catalog available. You can't find that um, in some of the onboarding they have for new users. And why? I mean, that's something that the company tested into to see. And it turns out when you're getting to these sign-up pages for Netflix, 
what really drives people to take the plunge and give it a shot is the free trial. When they offered up people a look at the catalog, even a small part of it, they got so bogged down in hunting for specific titles. What they found worked best in terms of bringing people onto the system and keeping them was getting them in and, and having them sign up and actually use the service. Um, and, and so that's a case where um, you know, there might have been a little bit of a disconnect between what we thought we wanted and, and how to find that out and, and how we actually um, acted and were interested as consumers. Wow. Um, I think... I can't say that I'm too surprised. I have personally experienced, uh, you know, sitting in a group with my friends trying to figure out, uh, you know, what we're going to watch together. We're on Netflix, and it's easy. I can see, you know, with that specific example, how you can get bogged down going through the different choices, and the fact, and I can see how the company wants to get people, you know, into that content viewing as quickly as possible. But for investors, um, kind of trying to roll this around a little bit. Uh, for, for the investors who are listening, you know, this level of granularity and insight to the customer base, I think uh, Netflix can do things. It allows really the company to do things like pay three hundred million dollars a year for exclusive rights to Disney content, for example, or spend you know four and a half million dollars per episode for House of Cards, or nine million dollars per episode for their original series Sense Eight as well. And they have a lot more confidence here to make these kinds of invents, investments and ultimately. Uh, have more confidence that they will pay off, and you know you can take all of this information that they have at their disposal. You combine that with uh, you know the estimates of Netflix is spending uh, a content budget for 2017, I think about six billion dollars, and you realize why you know the company is able to grow so quickly. Its subscriber count was up 25 percent in 2016, hit 94 million total as of their most recent report. Um, any other takeaways here, Dylan, uh, for you on this company or their process or what you heard um, at the conference before we move on? One thing that I do think was pretty interesting, and it just kind of underscored the importance of this testing approach, um, was the speaker said, what we found over the years of testing is that our intuition is generally wrong. <laughs> and so, you know, these are guys that are professional designers and, and people that work in the business of online media. And even they don't have the greatest finger on the pulse of what people want and the best way to deliver it to them. And so that is why they have this very rigorous testing environment set up, is because you may have this hunch about how people behave, but until you have the data to back it up, or, or you might see that you made one assumption that was just totally unfounded, you know, and, and it turns out that that's not a priority for users. Um, but, but it's nice for them to have these numbers, because otherwise they'd kind of be flying blind. Sure. All right. So before we move on to our next topic, I want to thank our friends at Away for supporting Industry Focus. Away offers the perfect luggage to make your travel experiences stress free, and their suitcases come in a variety of colors and four different sizes, all at less than $300. Multiple USB ports and a built in battery allow you to charge your smartphone, laptop, or tablet on the go, and a patent pending interior compression system tightly buckles in bulky items so even overpackers can fit everything that they need. And away luggage is made with premium impact-resistant German polycarbonate to be ultra-durable yet lightweight. Dylan, uh, you traveled down to Austin obviously this week with uh, away luggage by your side. You know, how has your experience been? It's been great. I I don't know if you remembered when they dropped it off. Um, you know, the, the team that handles our advertising um, hooked us up with these to borrow, and they dropped them off at the uh, at headquarters and. We were getting a lot of people walking by the editorial pod checking out the the luggage from away. It's pretty slick. I had a lot of people testing it out and kind of kicking the tires. Um, 
I had a blast flying with it because I'm someone that has used a hand-me-down duffel bag from my parents for about 10 <laughs> years, and it is not waterproof. Um, it, it's, it is terrible in the rain, and it was raining as I was leaving D.C., um, and so it was nice to fly with something that is, is, frankly, slick and pretty easy to work with. I packed an entire week's worth of stuff, you know, I'll be down here until next Saturday, um, without any trouble. You know, I, I did use the rolling method, um, which which I hear you're very fond of with your, is that Marie Kondo um, <laughs> obsession? <laughs> yep, uh, to fit all your clothes in there, you know, the rolling is the, or a very tight ro- kind of roll fold is the best way to get everything in there. Yeah. But, uh, you know, Away offer even offers a lifetime warranty and risk-free hundred-day trial period. So, if you decide it's not for you, you can return it for full, for a full refund, no questions asked. And as a special offer for listeners, go to awaytravel.com/fool and use promo code fool at checkout for twenty dollars off your order, along with free shipping anywhere in the continental U.S. Again, that's awaytravel.com/fool promo code fool. So now we turn our attention to Walt Disney, and uh, from what you described to me before the show, Dylan, it seems like a lot of the testing the company discussed at the conference here was around experiences and uh, their theme parks and how they can kind of push the envelope with new technology potentially. Uh, can you give us some more detail? Yeah, the session that I attended that was relevant to Disney was called Using AI and Machine Learning to Extend the Disney Magic. And so we had a couple different folks from Disney corporate there. And as the title implies, I mean, this was really a talk all about what Disney is doing in the space of artificial intelligence and machine learning. Um, this is obviously a nascent field and one that I think we're probably not going to see a whole lot of, or we're not going to know that we're seeing it for quite some time. But one thing that I was really struck by was the emphasis on consistency with everything Disney does. And so they think of really their, their characters, their stories, all these different ways that people interact as touch points that they have with, with the emotions and the characters that bring out those emotions and how important it is for all of them to be consistent to be consistent in line with the character in line with the Disney brand and so they're investing heavily on the tech side to see what they can do and and how they might be able to continue to bring these characters to life but I think they're doing it very carefully I think a lot of this is going to be behind closed doors for a very long time sure um, I have to ask you though did they you know you mentioned artificial intelligence and machine learning um, I'm really curious. For me, and you know, in the context of a theme park, I'm thinking maybe the typical you know person in a costume representing famous Disney characters like Mickey Mouse get replaced potentially in the future by uh, some robot in the costume instead. Do they did they give you any examples or showcase any of these things that they're working on? They talked a little bit about what you know what different ways AI might be incorporated by Disney in the future. You know, they talked about um, chatbots or some kind of kids' chat apps, maybe some quiz apps, things like that. They talked a little bit about the idea of having Disney characters at the park powered by AI or machine learning as well. Um, But one thing that I think we have to keep in mind here is, you know, that emphasis on consistency and then the experience always being so positive and so seamless. Um, There are a lot of major challenges with AI and machine learning for as far as we've come. I mean, in the R&D lab, when they're working on this, and you know, they kind of have some very small groups of people interacting with whatever they're creating, they have total control. Um, in the theme park, they have slightly less control, but I think they're still dictating a decent amount of the interactions and, and the experiences um, that their technology will run into. Um, if you're thinking about the consumer product side and, and maybe eventually being able to buy something that is AI-powered you know, off of supermarket shelves or something like that, that is a Disney-branded product, 
I think we are way, way, way away from that just because it's a matter of control and kind of understanding the environment that the technology is going to be used in. Sure. Uh, I'm not surprised uh, in terms of they're kind of taking this more measured uh, pace and approach to this just because you know, a lot of a lot of different things could happen, I imagine, in a park with a kid. Um, uh, whereas, if you have somebody now who's in the costume, they can kind of react dynamically as necessary. But you know, even if you think now about certain toy companies, they're kind of entering this in terms of the AI. Uh, you see Barbie dolls now that kids can actually talk to, and uh, you know, can have a conversation with. And the Barbie will have some pre-programmed response as well. But it's cons- it's learning and and you know, uh, connected, I believe, to like a cloud-like. Uh, Infrastructure essentially that allows them to to be a little bit more dan- dynamic when interacting with the kids that are playing with the dolls. But um, what else did uh, were they able to share in terms of uh, some developments in this space? Well, they showed a couple different R and D projects that they're working on. Um, one was kind of an AI machine learning fueled uh, version of Pascal from the movie Tangled, and another one was this project they called Jake. And unfortunately, the videos for these aren't available anywhere. But I think really what we saw with um, what they were willing to show us was Disney just kind of studying how people interact with these renderings of the characters and what they do with them and if they are able to still build that emotional connection. Because I think that's what is so important for them as a company is maintaining that and not having any of that lost if they ever decide to go over to the machine side. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm really surprised. Uh, I was looking into uh, other ways that they've already kind of adopted uh, this kind of a technology in, in their theme parks or across the company, and you know, in terms of the history of the company, it's really interesting to find that you know, as early as the 1960s, um, they adopted animatronics at their Enchanted Tiki Room attraction, which has singing and dancing birds. And from what I was reading, uh, in terms of news at the time, uh, you know, this bird that would sit there and kind of beckon uh, park guests into the attraction. Was so popular and just it was so groundbreaking at the time. There would be crowds that would just gather outside to see this happen. Because you know, think about it, in the '60s, nothing like that before. And you know, it reminds me of other things that the company has done to kind of push the envelope a little bit, um, or at least be willing to invest to push the envelope. You think about Pixar, kind of leading Hollywood at the time with computer animated films. Disney was willing to pay over seven billion dollars to kind of acquire their expertise with computer animation, which obviously their films are focused on now and intellectual intellectual property there. And also, you know, they have things. Uh, I haven't been to a park in some time, but my brother told me recently from his trip, you know, they have their magic bands now. So available to guests, you know, these are this is RFID technology that really makes the guest experience very seamless. You can enter parks, enter ho- enter hotel rooms with this band. Um, it's just uh, just some examples of how uh, you know the company is definitely not uh, inexperienced in terms of pushing technology and finding ways to innovate and make experiences at the park and with their products that much more rich and uh, and and just fun to play with. Yeah, one of the panelists said, you know, we're not a tech company, but everything we do seems to be under piles and piles of tech, you know, as we continue to move along as mm-hmm. a company. And so, um, I, I think that users and, and consumers that go to the park and things like that, they're going to continue to see the experience that they, they currently have at the park for quite some time. And, and they might eventually be interacting with AI and machine learning at the park and not even realize it. I think that if Disney had its druthers, that's exactly what would happen, right? You know, they are so much about capturing the magic and having you, you know, not see the strings that are pulling everything in the background and, and cultivating this really incredible experience. And I think once the technology gets there, um, 
you're definitely going to be interacting with it quite a bit more at the theme parks in particular. Okay, very cool. Um, so that is a, a wrap on our discussion for today. Uh, just as a preview, is there uh, anything else coming up at South by Southwest this week that you'll be covering on the other shows or that you're really excited to see? Well, Simon Erickson is going to give me a little break, and he's going to talk on the healthcare show on Wednesday, and I believe he's also going to talk with Sean O'Reilly on the energy industrial show on Thursday. Um, so some very fun stuff lined up there. Simon's going to be talking health and med tech with Christine tomorrow. And um, I don't know. I, I'm hoping to land a couple interviews. We'll see what happens. Friday's episode is still in the air. I have an interview that I booked and uh, locked down with a self-driving car expert. Um, so we might wind up airing that and kind of double-dipping on self-driving car technology. But if anything else interesting comes up, um, there might be a change of plans. Either way, we'll publish the episode as a bonus episode and make sure that all of our listeners are getting all the content that we put out. Sounds good. Thank you, Dylan. That's a pleasure, Vince. All right. Well, that wraps up our discussion. Uh, you can reach out to us and the rest of the Industry Focus crew via Twitter at MF Industry Focus or shoot an email to industryfocus at fool.com. And don't forget to check out podcast.fool.com for more foolish content. People in the program may own companies discussed in the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based only on what you hear during the program. Thanks for listening and fool on.